I was realizing something as, we're up here, as I was up here, um, or sorry, as I was watching kind of Joman do announcements and, and uh, listening to the band, and, and especially on a Sunday like today. So if you're new with us, I just felt real compelled to share this. Um, we have services of lament. Uh, the reason why we go through the church calendar and acknowledge like Lent has been a season that's been a part of the Christian church for thousands of years um, the reason why we own um, uh, the times of mourning, the reason why we talk about issues of justice, while at the same time, in the midst of whatever turmoil we may or may not feel at a current moment, we can also come together and sing of God's joy and hope. It's because we, we want to be a, a church that reflects the whole of the biblical story. And, and I, what, was, what was kind of just coming to mind as I was thanking God as I was just in a, I was in a place this morning of like such hope. Like I was so encouraged by, by the larger church recently. Uh, and I've been encouraged by all these incredible stories of what God's been doing. And I was just in this place where I wanted to like, you know, keep the synth pop going like all morning. We recognize it right? You've come in some mornings where you've been on the mountaintop and you've come in some mornings and you've been in the valley. And what I don't ever want our church to be is a church that ignores the valley, that ignores it. Phrases like the best is yet to come is a great phrase. You ever heard this phrase? The best is yet to come. It's, I get it. Like with Christ, we can do all things. But sometimes that phrase sort of like jumps over Friday and just moves right to Sunday. It doesn't go through the cross. It doesn't acknowledge the ache. Because sometimes the best isn't yet to come. Sometimes what's right in front of us is hardship, is pain, is a fight, but we will never be forsaken. God is faithful always. I just felt like I needed to share that with us this morning because I'm just so thankful to be a part of a church. This isn't like Andrew or Sarah or other leadership like setting culture. This is our church is so good at being able to rejoice with those who need to rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, who are able to wanna like, if you've noticed, there's been just a deeper desire to just be more abandoned in worship and give thanks. We get fired up at Patriots games, but we come to church and we're like, hmm. You know, like we want to like be a, be a, a church that, that celebrates and rejoices, but we also want to be a church that acknowledges when there's injustice and names it, right? We want to be a church that acknowledges when there's hurt and pain and doesn't just go, have a little more faith and everything will be good. And we can lean into the brokenness and realize that it's in that moment that God does meet us and does bring us faith, hope, and love. But it's by going through the ache, not by trying to ignore that it's there. I don't know if that's a word for anyone here this morning, but I felt like I needed to give that. So anyway, good morning. It's good to see you. We're starting a new series um, called uh, Church Kids. And I was really excited about this. If you can't tell, like, kind of the mood and then maybe it's just because we had a child or something. I'm just, I'm like, I'm having this just moment. It's a new year. And, and, and I'm feeling the same division that many of you are feeling. If you have any bit of you know, social media at all, you may or may not be aware that our world is more divided than ever, arguably. Um, I know every generation probably likes to claim that, more divided than ever, win. Uh, but 
But it feels like that. And I want to acknowledge that it, it feels like that. And yet, I, I do need to, to own that I have just been filled with so much hope. So much hope because I look around at the people that I get to sit next to in the pew, the people that I get to pray with and talk with and share life with. And I see such a desire, like we were talking about last week, people to be peacemakers in the world, to see God's work. And, and just something about the title, Church Kids. Have you ever seen, um, I wanted to show this video, but we didn't have enough time. Everyone familiar with the band Sigaros? Anyone? It's this Icelandic band. Um, uh, it just very over-the-top, atmospheric, beautiful kind of soundscape-type music. Anyway, they have this video. All their music videos all have um, little kids in it. Every video has little children, uh, whether it's in, like, a, they're trying to make a particular political point and they're in, like, a war-torn setting. There's one video where the, these kids are on this adventure and it ends with this, like, Peter Pan moment and the kids all fly off a cliff off into the distance. They're beautiful videos. They're all about little kids. And then they have one video that um, kind of flips it. And it's a bunch of uh, grandparents, like folks that are, you know, in their 70s plus who are all playing in the puddles like kids. They're like doing like they're playing pirate. It's like you're watching these older folks in their 70s like splash around and do all these little toddler type things. It's incredible. And I was thinking of Jesus' invitation, like unless you are like one of these little children, you will not see the kingdom of God. I was thinking, like, man, we, regardless of your age, there's something about being called a kid, right? There's all the negative immaturity with that. But, man, there is the beauty of innocence and wonder and expectancy of, of being a kid. And I just think thinking of us going out into the world, these kids ready to take back, like it says in Matthew, what belongs to God, to reclaim what belongs to God, to join God in what he's doing, to be people of wonder. And church kids... Church kids see things differently. And that's what I want to talk about today, how church kids kind of see things a little bit different. We talk a lot about the kingdom of God. We talk a lot about heaven being here. Um, I want to talk about how church kids have a different sort of vision, a different set of glasses on, a way of seeing the world. Have you ever heard the phrase, um, people that are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good? Anyone ever heard this phrase? That certain Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. What that's simply critiquing is this idea that folks that are all, like, they think that the way of Jesus is about getting a bunch of people saved so they can go to heaven. Invite people, invite Jesus into my blood pumping muscle, and then when that happens, then I'll go to heaven. I don't really need to worry much about, you know, how I live. God's grace is good. I'm just going to hang out, and then I'll go to heaven when I die. It's sort of like an insurance check. All right, it's the way sort of a very shallow form of Christianity um, has sort of risen. So that's what that phrase is critiquing, which I get. But if you dig a little deeper, I, I humbly submit to you that we want to be so heavenly minded that we are earthly good. That we should be so obsessed with this heaven breaking in that Jesus says, right? He says the kingdom of heaven is near. We're told that as Jesus rises from the dead and these new churches are, are, are a community, an outpost of heaven, that they're beginning to see heaven burst through, sort of like flowers creeping up through the concrete. And so Jesus, over and over and over in Scripture, is trying to help teach his disciples how to see this other world. I was thinking of stories of how when I was a kid, how I, I 
It's almost like uh, augmented reality, like the Pokemon game. Anyone, anyone like really into Pokemon for the 30 seconds that it was huge? Yeah, our whole church. <laughs> what was the thing that you did? You made it like a hot spot, made it a, a poke stop or something? Yeah, we made our church that one time. It's like maybe people will come to church if they make a poke stop. So, so dumb. <laughs> I mean, awesome. Sorry, I just defended the whole Pokemon contingent of our church. Um, <laughs> right, augmented reality, that game, if you played it, was you would be looking through your camera, like literally, like there's the subwoofers, there's the aisle, there's the people, and then you would see little Pokemon figures, like, you know, like on people's shoulders or, right? That's how the game went, up on the, the window or things like that. You'd see things a little bit different. When you're a kid, that's how you play. If you, um, anyone have a good backyard or some woods to play in? I found this with kids who had some woods. I had a lot of woods behind my house. And those were not just, I go back there and look now with my modern, like with my adult eyes, and I go, how did I see what I saw? In my imagination, oh my gosh, there were all these rooms. I had these two rocks. They were my fireplace. I was the captain of all of our friends because I was the oldest kid. So I was the captain of this thing we had called the Rescue Rangers. We had a, we had a crew called... Before Chippendale Rescue Rangers came out. Before. Yeah, innovator. And so we were the Rescue Rangers, and I had the, I had the, the biggest four because I was the captain because I was the oldest kid and mean like that. And I had, uh, there were these two rocks that kind of were like a, a fireplace oven. That's how I imagined it in my mind. I would cook food for all the troops, for all the other people. I go back and look at that now. It looks nothing like an oven or a fireplace, right? <clears throat> I had these back, like, secret chamber areas where I would do all my planning that felt like forts in and of themselves. No, it's not there. Um, the way in which, like, these paths would run, we would have um, all of these, like, different stations that we would, like, be able to do surveillance. We were trying to keep, we were, like, peacekeepers, trying to keep the peace around the neighborhood. And I had all of these, this imagery, and I can see it all in my mind like it's real, right? But my imagination would kind of overlay these images onto the world that was there. And so we would just stage these long games. Anyone just play for hours out in the woods. You get lost in your own imagination, but it involves the real world around you. Well, Jesus is trying to help his people not just develop a, some sort of imagination to see the world in some way that it's not. He's trying to help them see that this world is not just the earthly, fleshly components that it's made up of. It's something that nearly every generation has reflected on. Uh, one writer uh, recently did a, a sort of like large expose of like on all the major and even a lot of minor religions, different thought systems, even to some certain like uh, more new age sort of secular leaning ideologies and ways of seeing the world. The thing they all had in common was this idea of some other world, some other plane, some other way to see things. Sometimes we talk about it as modern folks, just this idea of love. Love is very difficult to biologically make sense of. Why do we have the connections that we do? And we try to like break it down to certain like elements and, and uh, certain connections that are happening in our brain. It's very, very difficult to try to make sense of why we respond the way that we do to certain people and certain things. Making sense of beauty Right? There's always this sense of there's some other plane. There's something else beyond our five senses. And Jesus is actually helping his disciples throughout the scriptures make sense of this other world. And so what it means to be church kids, 
are people who go out into the world and see a different reality and act accordingly. So I want to talk a little bit about this as we talk about what it means to be a church. Jesus, as he's trying to give them lenses, as he's trying to help them discern, right? If you've read the Bible at all, discern between light and dark, the good and the true and the beautiful what it means to be in tune with God and out of tune with God. We get a bunch of stories. I want to highlight a few very briefly. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Mark 14. Mark 14, verse 1. I hear all those pages flipping. Now, <laughs> we okay? We're, with, we're together? We here? Yeah? Awesome. Let's read the scriptures. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? They could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand and and prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This really simple moment, Jesus says there's something else going on here. He says as long as there will be a church, they'll be telling this story. This story of a woman, we talked about this passage before, some of the context of this is just powerful that there's a woman even sitting at Jesus's feet. And she breaks open this jar and apparently this spilling of perfume, this act of worship is something that will be remembered. Jesus saying this is a holy and sacred act. He's blown away by her sacrifice. And so just off, just on the surface, we're gonna move on. But Jesus is teaching his disciples to see levels of depth that everyone else is missing. Something deeper, something more profound than, is what on the, than what's on the surface. There's something deeper than just the mundane. It's not just oil. It's not just nard. Love saying nard. Say nard with me. Nard. Nard. It's not just the element there. He's saying actually there's something else going on here. There's something really beautiful and transcendent. Genesis 28, one of my favorite passages Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, now we'll come back to that in a second. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night before the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you, you and your descendants, the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, north and the south. 
All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your, and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He wakes up. Jacob wakes up to the God that had been there all along. He didn't see it. He didn't see it. This is the story of the whole of scriptures of people waking up to something else happening in the world. Exodus 3. I'm going to keep going here. Moses, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush. It was the burning bush scene. Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now elsewhere in scripture, there's a guy named Stephen in the first church and he talks about this story of Moses in the burning bush. Guy named Stephen, he says, Moses had been in the land for 40 years before this happened. God says to Moses, he's trying to get Moses' attention. He's got some things for Moses to do. He says, take off your sandals. The ground you've been standing on is holy. Now, it's safe to say that Moses had walked by that bush over and over and over and over. And so the question many of the great rabbis ask is, was the ground suddenly holy? Was the ground suddenly made holy? Or had it been holy for 40 years and he just finally stood still and noticed it? Is the ground you walk on holy at certain moments? Or are you waking up to the God who has been there all along? Jesus is trying to help his kids, his son, the sons and daughters of God. He's trying to help them wake up and begin to see. It's not just even wake up. They're kind of awake. It's like give them a new set of glasses. I, I wanted to pull up this video. I showed it years ago in a sermon. I was blown away. Maybe some of you have seen this online. It's this image of this uh, young girl who had been deaf, I believe most of her life, and had never heard her husband's voice. And there was this particular procedure they were able to do. Anyone ever seen this video? It's amazing. There's this procedure they were able to do where she was able to finally hear him. And so they're about to kind of turn this thing on. She had whatever operation, and she's sitting in the room. And then I believe you hear her husband just say, hi, honey. And she just stares there and then just starts to weep. It's like, oh, it crushes you. Go, go and look that up. It's incredible. And it's sort of like that. It's like there's, a, there's a, a, an area of deafness. There's an area of blindness. And Jesus is trying to say, hey, there's more going on here than you think. And what Jesus, take a step back and do a little basic theology here. Right? Jesus is announcing that in some new way, the kingdom of heaven is breaking through. That the kingdom of heaven is here. We're told in Peter we can speed the coming of the kingdom. We play some active role in the kingdom of heaven coming close. We're supposed to pray, right, on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray in providence as it is in heaven, in our families as it is in heaven. There's something about what heaven is like that is breaking into this world. Jesus is announcing that there's something new bursting forth right here in the midst of this one. And we can begin in this world and in this life to begin to live the life of heaven 
now. This is the story of the whole of Scripture. John 5, 17, Jesus says to them, my father's always at work to this very day. Most of you have probably read that passage if you're, you're, if you're a church kid. <laughs> my father's always at work. And I always have to stop at that passage and go, really? My father is always at work in school. My father is always at work in every relationship and every mess and every time and every interaction and every person I meet and every person who wants nothing to do with Jesus in the first place in every jail cell, with every enemy, what if I begin to trust this? I want to be the kind of person that sees things as they are, that has enough faith to begin to see things as they actually are. One writer says the purpose of church is not to escape. We don't get here to escape the world. It's rather to open ourselves to the presence of God everywhere. We come here to learn how to see God everywhere else. That's good, right? We come to church. We come to church to be trained up, to condition ourselves to be able to see God everywhere else. Church should be a place where we are becoming aware of a God who is everywhere. And if it happens here on Sunday, great. But if it isn't opening you up to a God who is everywhere, then we as a church are failing you. Jesus says, my father is always at work. So back to Jacob really quick. He reached a certain place, it says in the scripture. He reached a certain place in Hebrew. That's a way of saying between nowhere and nowhere. This is one of these Jewish phrases that are sort of funny. Like if, you, if we understood the Hebrew language, you go, like I read these commentaries. This is what I do with my spare time. I'm on kind of paternity leave right now. So I just like I sit at home and I read commentaries while like my child is napping on my, on, my, on my chest and I read these things. And so these Hebrew scholars will go, oh man, this is hilarious. And I'm looking at it like, no, it's not. I trust you though. <laughs> this is the writer saying like, yeah, between at a certain place, it's like between uh, yeah, the, nowhere and nowhere. It's a way of saying like, this is just a random place. It's in the bar. It's in the cubicle. It's in the nursery. A certain driveway, a certain phone call. Church kids should be so heavenly minded, so dialed into the heaven breaking forth right here that we are actually of earthly good. People who value the things of heaven. The writer Paul in Colossians says we need to set our minds on things above. We need to set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Church kids value the things of heaven, which then have this direct impact on how they live in the rest of the world. Because we don't always have the right set of values, correct? Can I read you something funny from a philosopher I love, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard? He says this, I saw that the meaning of life was to secure a livelihood and that its goal was to attain a high position that love's rich dream was marriage with an heiress, that friendship's blessing was helped in financial difficulties, that wisdom was the majority assumed it to be, that enthusiasm consisted in making a speech, that it was courage to risk the loss of $10, that kindness consisted in saying, you're welcome at the dinner table, that piety consisted in going to communion once a year. This I saw and laughed. 
He goes, I, I, I used to think this is what compassion looked like. That's, right, what loving looks like. That's what being generous looked like. And I look back and realize my bar is stinking low. It's low. He goes on to basically reflect on my eyes are set on the things of earth, on a value system that isn't God. We laugh at this, but then we, I ask myself, what are my own values? Do my everyday reflect earthly or heavenly values? How do I live out the values of heaven to set my mind on things above? Am I careful what I set my eyes on? If I believe, and I don't pretend that everyone in this room does, I don't have time to, to, today wasn't a sermon to convince you of heaven breaking in. We're coming with this assumption that, that there's at least something else. Many have called it the moral law. have called it just the sense of love, the spirituality, most folks call it, who aren't followers of Jesus. But those who are here, a good, good, good number of you, I think, are Christians here. As followers of Jesus, this is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus that we are joining with God in the things of heaven. And so if our minds aren't set on the things above, if our minds aren't set, if our value system isn't set on the things of heaven, then it actually will begin to affect our value system deeply here, like the things and how we actually live. So I wanna talk about a couple of them in closing. You all with me? Church kids see heaven. They set their minds on things above That should affect, we should be so heavenly minded that we're of immense earthly good. So one of these things is money. Let's talk about money. Everyone loves talking about money in church. Lonnie, you set me me up good for that one. This is the most sought after thing in the visible world. If there's this visible world and there's this sort of invisible one breaking in, there's the things of heaven that are somehow richer and more true that are breaking through in the midst of this one, but doesn't come like a fire because God's a God of love and it comes up from underneath. That this, like this thing of money that in the fleshly, earthly, visible realm we seek after probably more than anything else. How does our view of the way that heaven sees money affect how we live now? Matthew 19, we have a lot of scripture today. We good with that? We like the Bible, right? Ish. It's a joke. 16. Just then a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Hasn't even been the full-on announcement of the kingdom of God necessarily. Maybe this man didn't hear it yet. And he knows, like, there's this life of the ages, this eternal life, this life of heaven. I want that now. I want to live life to the full now. I want to believe the best is yet to come now. And so he goes, what do I have to do to get that? I want that. That's what everybody wants, whether they use different language or not. I want the fullest life now. I want eternal life now. He says, why do you ask me what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, don't steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? There's a dissonance, it seems. I'm, I'm, I'm doing all this, but I'm not, I don't feel like I'm really experiencing eternal life. Or maybe he's just trying to put Jesus to the test, many have argued. 
When Jesus answered, you want to be perfect? You want to walk the way of heaven? Go sell your possessions and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. How many of you, that would just be a painful thing if Jesus came to you and said that? Don't just brush over this. Go, yeah, yeah, we should give to the poor more. That's what Kierkegaard's critiquing. Oh, wow, what a powerful passage. Yeah, I I should have put an extra two bucks, you know, like towards this nonprofit. I should have given an extra two bucks in the offering this week or something. When the young man heard this, he went away. How many of us would probably, what? Went away leaping, sad, because he had great wealth. Jesus knew what his thing was. This isn't an invitation for every human being to sell all they have and give to the poor. Some of you are like, Phew. But it is an invitation to everyone who went, that you probably might need to consider it. He's, that's who he's going after. He had great wealth. He was comfortable. And for a majority of you, we got a whole lot of privilege going on in this room on various levels. Amen? Yeah, it was like an amen that it's true, not amen that it's good. <laughs> amen that it's true. It just is. We need to own these things. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus told the disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard. It's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't hear that preached very often. It's hard. It's hard to see the kingdom. It's hard to be a church kid. It's hard to set your mind on things above. It's hard to value the things of heaven. It's hard to see that when you got a lot of stuff because you lean on it more than you think you do. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's an architectural reference. I'll mention that some other time. Jesus goes on talking about money. Matthew 6, 28. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. This is so subversive. You drop Solomon, who to his audience is like, oh. Like Solomon's the guy. He's the wealthy king. And he goes, see the birds? Solomon in all his splendor. And all it has nothing on him. Nothing. I don't know who your Solomon is. I want to take pot shots, but I'm not. Kim Kardashian. All right, like not even Kim Kardashian in all of her splendor was dressed like one of these birds. Does that resonate with anybody? No? All right, I'm going to try another one. Tom Brady, in all of his splendor. Giselle, in all of her splendor. How many of you have no idea any of these people I'm referencing right now? God bless you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. I'm kidding. We're going to pray for Brady at the end of the service. Um, Man. It's just, it's just a value thing. This isn't like a critique of even Solomon. He's like, let's just get, let's just get like the things, like first things first. Don't worry. Like God's gonna take care of you. And the most like stripped naked vulnerable birds, they got all they need. They got all they need. Jesus' parables go on and on. I could tell more stories here. I'll skip ahead, but... Right, we're just told, the old yuppie bumper sticker, he who has the most toys wins. It's like, 
Like our minds are to be set on the things of heaven. He says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You cannot serve both God and money. I could go on. We must find ways then, just money is an example of setting our minds on things above. We have to find ways to demagnetize ourselves from money, to profane money. You know what I mean when I say that? We have to profane money. Uh, there's this one writer uh, who talks about in his book, he talks about money and power. This isn't a Christian writer actually at all, but he's talking about how we need to break the spell. And he says one way would just be like, take a bunch of 20s out of your bank account and walk into the middle of the street, so Kennedy Plaza on or wherever you want, and just go. <laughs> and then walk away. That is such a bad use of money. Can I just say that? The point of what he's trying to do, this isn't about like, is this money going to some excellent charitable organization? Am I investing it well in my kid's future? Am I making sure I have an estate? He's saying you actually sometimes need to just demagnetize yourself from it. C.S. Lewis used to do this all the time. He used to just, he's a famous uh, writer, and he used to just give away money just, just for fun. There's a famous story. I think I've told this before, but he and uh, G.K. Chesterton are walking uh, down the street in London, and a beggar comes up to him and asks him for money, and he gives him a couple pounds. You know the story? Gives him a couple pounds, and G.K. Chesterton turns to C.S. Lewis, and he goes, why would you do that? He's just gonna go spend it on smokes and drink. And Lewis just goes, that's what I was going to spend it on. <laughs> right? Come on. C.S. Lewis, king of the one-liner. We have to demagnetize. We have to profane money. We have to make sure it gets, like, pushed away. We have to, like, just make sure we have no, uh, no, no unhealthy connection to it. That's one way we set our minds on the things above as we have to decouple ourselves from the way we value certain things. Early communities of Jesus followers formed like a, an, almost like an army of resistance against the God of money. The book of Hebrews talks about believers who joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. People were taking their property. No one in their right mind joyfully accepts people taking their property unless that is they're anticipating better and long-lasting possessions. Unless their treasure's actually in heaven and there was some good purpose for what's happening here. One saint prayed that she would see the world's riches as dangerous. She prayed this, may I see the wealth in the world as dangerous, like a stroll among lions. This is Teresa of Avila. When a rich patron showed her diamonds and precious stones, she says, quote, I only laughed to myself and felt sorry that people should value such things. When I remembered what the Lord has in store for us. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation. He carried money lightly, using it to accomplish God's works but showed no signs of bondage to it. So heavenly minded, that's where my treasure is. So I look at money differently. I'm so heavenly minded that I'm of immense earthly good. Church kids are generous. Church kids are generous. And we're not held and coupled to the idolatry. Can I tell you one way, especially so many folks here who are like in that 20 something period of like trying to decide jobs. I think that's actually where idolatry hits so often. 
So many in our church are so generous. But I think we go, I have to do that. I can't give myself to this cause because it could mean abject poverty. I had someone come up after we talked about how we're raising money for preemptive love, this organization that's in one of the most dangerous areas of the world, Aleppo, these Christians serving, enacting preemptive love. I love it. And a couple of them were like, man, I would love to go and give my life to that. But you know, wait, what? I know what? Oh, well, you, I mean, I gotta, you know. No, what do you mean? I mean, I, I can't do that, though, really. I just would love to do that. I'll leave that there. A couple more things. I could go on, right? I just want to give some examples. Hardship. Hardship. Difficulty. The only promise that we are given is Jesus will go with us. That's why I make that comment. Again, I get the, the whole best is yet to come. I get it in the sense that like God is going to continue to do something new in our lives and that's beautiful. But the reality of physical circumstances, Jesus actually promises the opposite of that. So in a way, I understand it. In the way, it's totally biblically heretical. Jesus says, you wanna follow me? Stuff's gonna get real. It's gonna get hard. And not hard like self-imposed martyrdom, like I just walk around ticking people off and then they're mean to me. No, no, this is like I'm such a lover and peacekeeper and, ma- and like maker of peace. I'm someone who goes out into the world claiming Jesus' allegiance that it's gonna create points of friction, that, that there's gonna be attack. I just was hearing a story of somebody in the back who was praying for someone, wanted someone to come to church having a really difficult situation and there was all these like things that happened in their morning that kind of derail what happened this morning. And I thought, oh yeah, following Jesus is hard. What you were doing this morning was wildly redemptive and beautiful and full of life and joy. And, and it sounds like somebody got, got attacked on that. It's, it's difficult. There's hardships. Why would anyone choose to follow a man who promises more hardship, not less? I'm gonna let Paul answer the question. This is what Paul says in the New Testament. He says, I have worked much harder Here are the qualifications. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. Sounds like a good country song. In danger at sea and in danger from false brothers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and this is Paul's answer to the question, why? Why? Though outwardly we are wasting away, though stuff gets hard sometimes, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieved for us, achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on things not seen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Faith, hope, and love, that divorce that's happening. Faith, hope, and love in Christ and whatever anxieties we feel around politics, 
faith, hope, and love and the kingdom coming forward and the ache that we feel as our neighborhood has crime and it, faith, hope, and love and the reality that I don't know what to do with mom and dad and the way they're fighting right now. Faith, hope, and love. Our eyes are set on something bigger that God is doing in the world. Paul has two pictures of himself. One image he could view in a mirror, the insomnia, the beatings, the imprisonments, must have left their mark in a way that just destroyed him. The other image he could not see. Nevertheless, he could sense his inward self being remade, being renewed and made more fit. Belief in another world puts hardship in such a different light that he says they are just momentary troubles. It gives us a kind of freedom and energy and strength and drive, right? To be able to engage the hardships of life when we realize we are a part something bigger and the old is passing away. It's about trust. It's about trust. You can talk about moral failures. When our eyes are set on the things of heaven, the hypocrisy and brokenness and sin in your own heart, man, they don't, they don't own us. They don't win the day. They don't win the day. When your eyes are set on the things of God, you begin to have incredible grace and love for others because you realize, like we talked about last week, we are beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. When you see yourself as somebody who has been broken and saved, you have immense compassion towards your enemies, towards your, even your oppressors. And you can do that a beautiful Christian, distinctly Christian thing, which is both stand up against injustice while also honoring and loving the oppressor where you and family life don't just pick sides, you're on both sides because you're trying to help bring peace. You're trying to help reconcile. When our eyes are set on the things of heaven, there's this great story, South Africa, after apartheid, Nelson Mandela becomes president and he commissions this council and this council is basically given an invitation that any soldier is a part of the old regime, right? There's this genocide, could come and if they admitted what they did and asked for forgiveness, they would be exonerated. They, they, they would basically not have to go to jail. It was, it, was, it was one of the most like crazy things the world has ever seen. It's just so, there's nothing about it that was fair. And so there's this one man who had taken um, this widow's husband, or now, widow, now widow's husband, this man out, who was fighting back against the power and burned him out in the streets, killed him. Then if you think it was like a year later, had killed this woman's son in almost the same fashion, the soldier. Here he is on trial after all of this is done. And he names the fact that he did this. 
and the mother is in the courtroom. Mother looking into the eyes of this man who has killed her husband and her son. And she comes forward. The judge says, what, what do you think should happen? What do you think should happen? And she, he, he pivots to her and says, you get to decide. This is like in a courtroom not too long ago. she says I want you to come over she lived in the slums to come over into our hood and allow me to just sit with you to mother you so I was robbed of my, my opportunity to care for my, my son she said I forgive you forgive you and I want you to come over once a month and just spend time with me. Just be with me. That's what I want you to do. The man, the soldier, didn't actually have an opportunity to hear this. You know why? You guys know the story? He fainted. After she had said opening words, it's like, I forgive you. He had fainted and didn't get to hear the last part. At that point, in this courtroom, they started singing, like in a you know, cheesy movie or something, the courtroom started singing Amazing Grace. Just broke out. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It was like the courtroom recognized that, wow, this woman's, this church kid, her mind was set on the things above. Where things like moral failures, where she knew I've been forgiven, I've been set free. Go back and read her testimony. It will make you weep for a long time. Friend, you need a good cry. This is, the, this is the story. Man, when your eyes are set on the things above, you begin to interact with other people's failures and brokenness and your own in a very different way. When your eyes are set on the things above, you begin to look at your money and generosity in a very different way. When your eyes are set on the things above, you look at the hardships and the aches that you're going through and you look at them in a bit different way. And as Easter people, as Easter people, we're called to not fear death. We're church kids running around without the fear of the one thing that drives fear into the heart of every man, woman, and child in this world. And we're to walk around unchained from that. My mind is so set on the things above that I am beginning to even cast off this fear of death because all I have is today, all you have is today and the people around you and the opportunity you have to join God in the renewal of all things. God is inviting his church, his kids to be running around this city, running around our neighborhoods with eyes that can see what's going on because God's always at work. There's always these other things happening that are bigger than the circumstances right in front of us. There's a bigger cause than just the nest egg I'm doing in my bank account. There's a bigger thing happening. There's this hardship happening and it's real and it's painful and I can acknowledge it and I own that it's happening, but I have eyes to see what God might be doing in and through it. It's why, you know, the, the story that was most told, most told according to various scholars who who reflect on slavery in this country, most told among slaves, 
were these stories of heaven, these stories of Paul, of something new breaking forth in the midst of this world, where they would have just like these, they would be reminded that, hey, we're going through this right now. We're going through this right now, but man, one day, it would allow them to go back in to this awful, these awful, awful places. One, one scholar even notes jokingly, that when you know that there is a just God and you're under oppression, it's nice to know that the people who are like oppressing you are gonna get it 10 times worse one day. <laughs> it's funny. Let's pray.